Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. At some point, you've likely heard the phrase, the only way out is through. And if you're like me, you've either shuddered a little or thought, ugh, no thank you. When it comes to grief, the only way out is through also brings up expectations. An expectation that grief is something that we can get ourselves to the other side of. That if we just go through it, we'll one day leave it behind forever. For Nina Freelon, this phrase took a different turn. One that's more aligned with the reality of grief. In July of 2019, Nina's beloved husband of 40 years, Phil, died after wrestling with ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Six months later, her sister, Dr. Debbie Pierce, also died of cancer. Two months after that, COVID hit the United States, forcing many of us to slow down and turn inward. When Phil died, Nina got busy, busy doing all the things that needed doing. She stayed busy when Debbie died, but at this point, she was completely exhausted. Despite this exhaustion, the one thing Nina couldn't do was sleep. Her mind wouldn't turn off enough to let her rest. She tried everything, and nothing worked. What she eventually realized was that all that busyness was just making grief try harder to get her attention, and that what she most needed to do was to listen, to listen to what grief was needing from her. It was in this listening that Nina found what she wanted to say, and she had a lot to say. Nina is a Grammy-nominated singer and performer. She's also a writer, and now she's a podcaster. Her latest album, Time Traveler, is a collection of songs that she originally put together as a birthday album for Phil. Her podcast, Great Grief, opens a window into all of what Nina is going through in her grief. Nina is a self-described lover of words, and the description couldn't be more accurate. In our conversation, I found myself so wrapped with attention that I'd forget to ask the next question. Nina and I wind our way through the early days of grief— over to her protest against the term widow, around to what grief most wanted from her, and eventually to how she's making room for both pain and joy in her creativity. Nina, thank you so much for making time to be part of Grief Out Loud. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And I know we have a lot to talk about today in our in our episode together. And I always like to start with the people, the people who bring us to this realm of grief and wondered, you know, is there a memory of your husband, Phil, that's been on your mind a lot lately? Um, he is always on my mind. Um, we think somehow that when someone passes away, the story ends. And in some ways it does. But He's present with me. Even now, as I'm talking to you, he's very, he's very present. Of course, there are memories, but the memories are sparked by places, activities, 
walking places where we've walked before together, you know, that kind of thing. But he's always, he's always with me. And I, and I welcome that. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the idea that when someone dies, they become part of our kind of background operating system, you know, just thinking <laughs> from technology, but then there'd be places or moments or smells or, or sounds that bring it more into the foreground of, of an anchor to them. That's, a, that's absolutely been my experience. There's also sometimes pain associated with those memories when I see an older couple walking together, holding hands, and, you know, it makes me long for or wish for that experience that I won't have. Um, we were married for 40 years, and we're looking forward to growing old together. And that isn't going to be, well, that isn't going to be my reality in that way, not walking in the park holding hands. As if, you know, there's the grief for what was and the grief for what won't be. Oh, absolutely. As you continue to, as you continue to move through your life, you wear your grief in different ways. Uh, I just celebrated my 65th birthday. Yay. <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Birthdays are happy times, right? You know, there's balloons and flowers and but it was a sad birthday for me. I was surrounded by my family, which was lovely. But when the candles were blown out and I was by myself, I really felt I'm going to grow old by myself. And I never thought that that, I, it just never occurred to me that I would be growing old and more vulnerable, perhaps alone. That was a new thought that I, I just had to sit with it. I just, I just had to sit with it. There was no option but to just sit in that space. Which we hear so much, right, about grief. Like there's no options except to, I mean, there's options to try to shove it aside or oh, run yeah. from it. But yeah. there's times when it just is there and we have to be in it. And, and after Phil died, shortly after Phil died, your sister also died. Yes, my, my husband, Phil, died in July, and then my sister passed away in January. So backstory to Phil's death is there were three, he died from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, which is the worst, a very protracted, uh, debilitating series of losses bit by bit. And my sister, so that was a three-year walk. And there were lots of griefs, small ones, large ones, middle-sized ones on that walk with Lou Gehrig's disease. And then he died. And, and my sister was diagnosed with lung cancer. We had high hopes that she would, she would be one of the ones that could say, I made it on through. And she was a great help with Phil while he was going through his treatments and his you know, just sort of deciphering what the doctors were saying. She was a physician. And then she, it seemed like the wind was just taken out of her sails after he died. And she died in January. And I was the main caretaker for her. So it was like five years, really, four or five years 
of pretty intense caregiving and then two major deaths. You know, I'm, I'm giving myself a big excuse, lots of excuses. <laughs> I'm not being hard on myself. Because, <laughs> you know, I've, I've had a one-two punch and it's, um, and it's tough. And she was my only sister. And she was 18 months younger than I. You know, we used to talk when Phil was getting, you know, closer to his transition we kind of joked that, well, maybe now we'll be roommates and, you know, we'll be two little old ladies tottering around, mm-hmm. getting on each other's nerves. And, and then that wasn't an option. And then there's all the business of when someone dies that, that if you're the designated one who's the executrix or whatever, then there's that also. And I was that for both of, both of them. So one thing that comes to mind is thinking about this uh, sort of onslaught of grief of, you know, with Phil's illness, and then right after he dies, being there with your sister, she dies, all the logistics and sort of the like bureaucracy of dealing with after someone dies. I'm wondering when or how there's that, that survival time that happens right after someone dies where you're just doing the thing you have to do next. And then there's a time when the emotional reality of grief really starts to take hold and just wondering what that was like for you, or did it all happen at the same time? I think when you have the experience of seeing death come, it can be a little different. Now, the difference between going and gone is huge. Mm. I mean, it just isn't, you, you, can, you can say it was expected if you want to, but when someone is actually breathes their last breath, there is a shift that is huge. And I'm a, I'm a take charge kind of person. That's my personality, I'm busy. So after both deaths, I was in that mode, taking care of stuff, following her wishes, following his wishes, almost like in, in a kind of busy, busy shock phase where I wasn't feeling anything. I really wasn't feeling. I was just doing. And with Phil's death, especially, I was, I was doing things I, when I look back now, I didn't have to do at that time, but I, I wanted to get rid of everything associated with ALS. And there was a lot of stuff, you know, machines, breathing machines and and medications and wheelchair. And I mean, I was in a grief fury. I didn't want anything in my face that reminded me. I was like, well, he doesn't need this anymore. Well, he certainly doesn't need that anymore. And I now recognize that as, as anger and righteous anger, but it didn't feel like anger. It just felt like busy. With my sister, she was in hospice. I also felt like being busy was good, but I was also, I was exhausted. So all of the buttons that had been pushed had been pushed so many times that I just, I felt limp. So I kind of trudged through, but again, wasn't really feeling. It's almost like needing to recover enough to feel the feelings. I'm just wondering if you have a sense of when that 
started for you and what, what that's been like? Well, in my particular case, January, uh, July, 2019, through the summer, caring for my sister, she passes away in January and then there's COVID. So just in terms of your, your adrenals being ragged <laughs> and your whole hormonal system being out of balance, I was so tired and the kind of tired that you can't recover from. I was tired and I couldn't sleep because I'm learning and I'm, I, I haven't figured this out, but I'm learning that the grieving body and the grieving mind and the grieving heart all need different things. And my grieving body was fried, exhausted, but my grieving brain was on high alert. <laughs> so I'm laying in the bed, like twitching. I mean, it was awful. And I tried everything. I tried chamomile tea and I tried, you know, meditation and deep breathing. And I tried my yoga and all of the tricks that used to work. None of it worked. None of it worked. So I went to my doctor and I asked for a prescription and she prescribed this. Oh, gosh, I can't even remember the name of it, but it's a very common medication for sleeping and I swear that didn't work either because I did fall asleep, but I woke up tired and feeling druggy. And I don't think I really slept. I think that thing hypnotized me and made me think I slept. <laughs> I don't think I was sleeping. I mean, not the kind of good sleep. So I got off of that and tried alcohol and other herbal medications, <laughs> nothing worked. Nothing worked. My, I could not shut my brain off. It wasn't until some months of that, in the COVID quiet, right? Because we couldn't go anywhere. And, you know, every day there was a new horror story being displayed on the television. And it just was, it was a dark dark winter um, for a lot of reasons, personal, global. I, I finally had to just cry uncle. I mean, I really, you know, I tried prayer. I tried, please let me sleep. Lord, help me, please. Because I was like a zombie. Finally, it occurred to me to ask grief, what did she want with me? What do you want? Just tell me, what do you want? I can't take it anymore. And she spoke and said, your attention. Just that simple, your attention. I want you to sit with me was the vibration that I got. Now that's the last thing I felt like doing. The last thing, I mean, she could have said, you know, hike 10 miles and, you know, or <laughs> climb up the rough side of the mountain or, you know, go to Nepal and bring me back, you know, something crazy. But no, she said she wanted my attention. 
And I gave it to her because I felt like I had no choice. I just felt like I was like, if this means I can sleep, fine, I will sit with you and pretend that we're like good friends or, you know. What did that actually look like to give grief your attention? For me, it was a settling of the mind because to-do lists and things I needed to do, pressure I was putting on myself, all of that was like an escape from just sitting with my losses. I didn't want to think about being in the house in a pandemic without my husband. It seemed like the world was ending and not even my sister, not even my sister sick so that I could take care of her and have that be a distraction from my husband's death. No, my sister was dead too. So the compound nature of the losses were heavy, heavy, heavy. And I, my brain just said, let me protect you by, by creating these fictions that you have to do all this stuff. Couldn't go anywhere, right? So I had to make up stuff. I was rearranging closets, donating stuff, scrubbing the edges of things that were already clean. I mean, just busy. And, and, and I was afraid to sit with my grief, really afraid because it felt like I would be consumed, like I would drown, like it would be the end of me, I'd be annihilated. When I did finally agree to slow, to sit and just breathe and acknowledge and nod my head that yes, this feels really, really bad. I had tears. I mean, I cried until I was dry. I had just a download is all I can describe it feeling like. But on the other side of it, I actually felt better. And I was able to sleep. But that opened up a creative portal in my spirit for writing, music, story, I returned to journaling, which I had done all my life, but with Phil's illness, there was no time to journal. I would scratch little notes about what the doctor said or what happened on this particular day or some little thing that he wanted me to remember to do, but not journaling like I used to do when I had quote unquote free time. And all of this creative energy that you may see displayed in my podcast came through me in the winter and in through the spring of 2020. And it was so full and so rich and so surprising to me that I shared it with a friend of mine. I am an unintentional podcaster. And she said, girl, that's a podcast. And I was like, what? This personal stuff? This is personal stuff. And it has to do with my experience. She said, no. This is a human experience, and it's both personal and universal. I was like, well, I haven't been trained as a therapist. And I don't know. She said, you're not telling anybody what to do. You're just telling stories. 
and stories are one way we heal. So that was the beginning of my journey into the world of storytelling, telling stories both with words, but also with music, because I'm, I, I was very sure that I wanted to stay in my lane, in my lane as a storyteller and as a singer, and not as a therapist or an advice giver or the Oprah Winfrey of grief. None of that was of any interest to me because it, it is so personal. And when my therapist used to say to me, everybody experiences grief differently, that was always so annoying to me. Like it sounded like an excuse for not giving you the keys to the kingdom and telling you how to, <laughs> you know, how do I fix this? You know, how do I do, what book can I read? What, what movie can I watch? What, you know, is there a magic elixir that makes it all go away? And of course the answer is no, but the sitting with it is hard. I don't know what other people do, but I know I needed breaks. I mean, like grief is a full-time job, but you need at least a coffee break, at least, you know, paid vacation, something to give you, you know, some respite. She's, she's a hard task master, master and she, it's, it's a grind. But if you dialogue with her, this has been my experience. I don't know if anybody else's. If I'm like, yo, I need a break from you, sister. You sit over there. No, all the way over there. And I'm going to have myself a moment without you. I just, I don't want you in my head. <laughs> I don't want you in the refrigerator, you know, looking over my leftovers. <laughs> <You know? laughs> go sit over there and give me a break. I will come back to you. But for right now, I just, I need my shoulders to just come down from my ears and I, you know, let me have a glass of wine and just chill just for a moment. So grief and I have conversations all the time now. We are not, you know, super girlfriendy friends, <laughs> but she has some gifts. She definitely has some gifts that you don't get unless you sit with her. And they are born out of working through the loss and putting those pieces in some kind of crazy order after your loved one has transcended. You know, you have to build the house all over again. But lucky for me, I have a great scaffolding and great ingredients, great good bricks and good solid materials with which to build a new space. Well, I'm so grateful to your friend who said, this is a podcast, just make it happen. Because the, the episodes I've had the honor of listening to are, yeah, they're pretty spellbinding, because you are such a powerful, um, engaging storyteller. And I was, there were two things that came to mind when I was listening to your podcast, Great Grief. One was the origin of the, the name of the podcast, like how you landed on that. And then also, in one of the episodes, you talk about your reaction to the term widow, as like a legal term and then having to check the box. And so anyways, that's a two part question. Wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the origin story of the, the title of the podcast, great grief, and then just how, how you reacted to the term widow and, and how you feel about it now. Mm. 
Well, I guess you can tell by my podcast that I am a lover of words, metaphor and poetry. And the origin story for great grief is, um, is that grief, it, it just occurred to me that it is great. But I wasn't thinking about great, like great and fantastic and wonderful. I was thinking about great as big and wide and huge and, and all encompassing and vast. But those other meanings come with it. The part of it that says it can be great and good great. So I thought that that word would be a great, wonderful way of describing what I wanted the podcast to be. So I went to um, the search engines that let you look for, for names. And I was like, man, great grief is so totally gone. I'm sure it's gone because somebody else years ago thought of this. This is not a unique, an original idea. So I went to GoDaddy and I, um, I searched greatgrief.com and lo and behold, it was available. So I bought it for $21 or however much it cost <laughs> for a year. And I, I, I took that as affirmation that I should go forward. I was like, you know what? If great grief is not available, then maybe, I, maybe that's a no from the universe. But it was available. And not greatgrief.us or .me or .greatgrief.com was available. And that told me something about how reluctant we are to link the word grief and great. Now, there's lots of good grief, but that's because of Charlie Brown and Peanuts, I think. <laughs> but to honor grief as a sacred space that is human and universal, not so much, at least not in our Western culture. And it's not as if any of us get out of it. It's not like you have an option. Like, oh, I'm not going to have this experience. Uh, thank you very much. You, everybody, if you live long enough, will experience some kind of grief. It, it doesn't have to be a death. It can be a loss of any kind. And what was that other question? Oh, the word widow? Yeah, the word widow. I don't like it. And I didn't think I had to even use it until it came time to, you know, fill out those papers you have to fill out. Social security, health insurance, da-da-dee, da-da-da, all these sort of bureaucratic things, hoops you have to jump through, legal. And I found out that there is a legal change in your name when your spouse dies. Being the lover of words that I am, I resisted it. First of all, it doesn't roll off the tongue with ease. It doesn't sound pretty. And the energy that came with it was not how I saw myself. It's not how I wanted to be named and claimed. I pushed back against it. Like, I need a new word. Yes, my husband has passed, but why change my name? 
And I started looking at other kinds of death. When my sister died, it didn't change my name. I still had a sister. She has died, but it didn't change my name. And it's only this relationship that you have through marriage where your name becomes some new thing on these boxes that you check. Are you single? Are you married? Are you widowed? The widow box, I was like, uh-uh, no, Mm-mm, no thanks. It seems like it goes back to this idea you were talking about earlier of, you know, the grief is universal and the grief is unique. And that yes. people's relationship to terms and labels is just as unique as them and their relationship with their person who died. Because I've, I've heard some folks who are parents who have had children die and they are wishing there was a term for them. You know, there's no term. Like if your partner or your spouse dies, you get to have a term. So people know, you know, people can recognize that you're grieving. Um, and then to hear the other side of it is like, no, thank you. I don't want to go in that box, <laughs> that label of widow. Of what does that mean? Right, right. I can understand wanting to have a an identifier that says, I have lost a child or I have lost a sister or I've lost a friend. You know, sometimes when you lose a friend, you don't feel like you have permission to grieve really hard. After all, you weren't family. They were just a friend, right? Part of the reason we long for or don't long for an identifier is that we don't feel we have permission to bring the loss into our everyday experience. We feel like after a certain time, it has to be hidden. 20 years ago, and you still? Come on, get over it, snap out of it. If we had a space for acknowledging our losses every single day, with the joy and the pain, then we wouldn't perhaps feel so isolated in our grief because it feels like it only happened to us, only to that individual, only to that family. When in actuality, everybody sees this movie. I think too about there's the terms that honor the people, there's the terms that signal grief to the world, and then there's the terms that represent the relationship and the role we played, you know, as, as parent, as partner, as spouse, as sibling, and that oftentimes there's the fear that I'm going to lose my role. I am, you know, do I get to still be a sibling? Do I get to still be a parent? Do I get to still be a wife? Does my marriage still matter in the eyes of others, even though my person, my partner is no longer here in their physical form? Oh, it's so, that is so real. Because I lived, my husband and I lived in a couple's culture. For 40 years, we were the couple. So now do you still get invited to events where it's a couple's event? Um, I'm still wearing my wedding band and my engagement ring, and I will wear them until the day that I feel like I don't want to wear them. I am his wife, period. I don't care what anybody else thinks or says. I am wedded to him. 
Now, I'm not confused about the fact that he has transcended and gone to that mysterious place we can't exactly name or describe. But I feel married. You know, Nina, I want to make sure we save some time to talk about your latest album, Time Traveler, which was just released. And it seems like so much of the grief, as you said, you know, when you finally sat down and asked grief, like, all right, what do you need from me? And she said, I need your attention. And then there was an opening for musical creativity, too. And just wondered if you wanted to briefly talk about the album and what does it feel like now to have it out in the world? Well, Time time Traveler was also a um, sort of an unintentional next project. It's my first CD in about 11 years. Somebody asked me, well, what, you know, what, what took you so long? And it's a combination of life happening that needed my attention and just the nature of time that just rolls on. And before you realize it, you look up and it's like 10 years, really? Time Traveler started off as about three and a half years ago as a, Phil had been diagnosed, but he was still able to get around. So maybe it was 2017. I decided I would make for his birthday, like this vanity record, just a small, offering of tunes that we both loved. He was from Philadelphia. So there were tunes by Marvin Gaye and tunes from the Philadelphia sound and things that we always loved and presented to him as a birthday present. So I went in the studio and I recorded about seven tracks, was in the process of mixing them and mastering them and sort of getting them ready to be shared with him and his health took a turn. And so I had to leave that project in midstream and attend to my life. My role as caregiver. I was able to share with him unmixed and kind of, in my mind, raggedy versions of of it, but he loved it. He absolutely loved it. And so that was encouraging, but then I put it on the back shelf because I had to live my life and do what was needed to be done. Fast forward a year or so, the musicians that worked on the project were like, girl, you're going to finish this record? And I was like, I, you know, I don't know if it sounds okay. I don't know if, you know, I just was full of doubt. And, and I didn't feel like I was in, in good form with my voice. I was exhausted. I was tired. Phil was, um, was really needing very intensive support and help for the activities of daily living and just everything was, it was just hard. And I, I, it crowded out my creative vision. It crowded out my voice. So I just left, I just, I just left that music somewhere to go back to later or not. And then as, you know, fate would have it, I guess, my piano player, Mickey Hayama, was like, that music is wonderful. If, you, if there's some things you want to do over, let's go back into the studio and finish up this project. This is really beautiful music. I know you did it for Phil, but this is something for everyone. Similar to the conversation I had about 
my writing. So we went back into the studio. I was very uncomfortable, very nervous, exhausted, fearful that I wouldn't be able to sing or that even if I could sing, it wouldn't be the same. And that somehow grieving had made a mark on me like a, a stain that everybody would know, gee, she's just not even the same as she used to be, is she? But some spark inside me said, whatever comes up, let it come. If it's not the same, so what? All I knew deep in my spirit was that I didn't have the energy to both sing and pretend that I wasn't grieving. That was too much. So I had to step out on faith and just really surrender to the muse and to whatever was in my spirit to sing or to express would have to be it. And this is also on my own dime. So it wasn't like I had a record company saying, come on, we want the old Nina back. So I went into the studio and what came out of me was different. It was broken. It was on a different level. And I found that I liked it, that it was a different aspect of my musical personality that I didn't even know was there. In the surrender came not so much bravery, but just more like um, surrender. Whatever kind of strength you may want to call surrender, it was that kind of strength. It mirrored to me the beauty in brokenness, the beauty in vulnerability, the beauty in authenticity, which I was afraid. I mean, I'm, I'm the kind of chick who comes on stage and I, I shine with my brightest light. I don't drag my butt up on stage and show you my darkness. And it's not as if Time Traveler is a dark record. It's joy inside pain. It's moments of, of wistfulness. It's moments of irony. It's joy. It's laughter. It's pain. Yes, it's pain too. It's the looking back on young love, but knowing that that love has transcended that whole space of being somewhere where you remember when, but you also realize you occupy a different now, that is another kind of expression that cannot happen unless you have that experience. You've mentioned earlier that, you know, you were a person of words and that you were able to find words in grief and put those out into the world in your podcast and in your journaling and in your writing and also in your singing now. And as you're talking, I'm thinking that you've also become very skilled at listening to yourself to your grief, and that that is a big part of expression is just to first listen deeply. And so I'm just really sitting in a place of appreciation for our conversation today around that learning, how important it can be to just tune into 
the grief and to make space for how that's going to come out and, and to have that recognition of I am changed by this and there is still beauty and skill and wonder in who I am now in these changes. So that is so true. And these are some of the gr- grief gifts that you get that nobody would ask for, that nobody would say, why don't you go through all these, you know, all of this, you know, wringing of hands and gnashing of teeth in order to get to this space. But it is, you know, one of the precious gifts that you receive in this, um, in this space. Well, Nina, thank you for taking time today to share this uncovering and this discovering with me and with our listeners. And I will link in the show notes to your website and to Time Traveler and to Great Grief, your podcast. Are there any other places that listeners should go to connect with you and with your creativity? Well, if you have the podcast uh, link and the record link, we would also like to link to your um, podcast so that our listeners can know about what you're doing as well. Well, great. Well, I look forward to your listeners finding our podcast and our listeners finding your podcast. And and Nina, again, just thank you for talking with me today and for sharing with, with me and with our listeners about Phil and about your sister, Debbie, and just about all that you have um, navigated in the last two years. Just grateful for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And listeners out there, we are grateful for you as well for making the show mean what it does, for tuning in, for sharing episodes with people in your life that you think might be supported by our conversations. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. Our website, dougy.org, is also where you can find all of our past episodes and our resources and ways to learn more about our program. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.